You know that saying, two heads are better than one? Well, when those heads happen to belong to anthropologists, the level of world-building craft that results is simply inconceivable. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with authors Alyssa Helms and Marie Brennan. Their new book, The Mask of Mirrors, is out next week from Orbit Books under the joint name M.A. Carrick. We're going to take a deep dive on world building in this interview, talk about some tabletop games that spiral out of control, and maybe feature some interesting accents. Well, on that note, let's see what Alyssa and Marie had to say. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, M.A. Carrick. And of course, by that, I mean, welcome to the Inn, Alyssa Helms and Marie Brennan. Glad to be here. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, I'm thrilled to have you. And uh, since you are actually the first uh, joint co-author pair that I've talked to on the podcast, the first question kind of feels natural. So just how did the two of you meet and what made you decide to collaborate together? Um, so we met... Ah, uh, 20 years ago now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we were both, literal 20. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, it, it was it was 20. Exactly. Um, yeah, so we were both undergrads uh, at different schools in archaeology and folklore. Uh, but one of the things in archaeology that you do it, as an undergrad is you do these summer field schools. And so we both went to a summer field school out of the University of York that was in Wales and Ireland a little bit too. Uh, and so that's where we ended up meeting was doing archaeology in Wales, which was pretty amazing. And Part of what was fun about it was Marie would basically spend every night in the finds tent, like hunched over her laptop, like writing her what would eventually become her first novel, Doppelganger, right? Yeah, that was the first published novel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, first published novel. You had written a couple before that. And then when she wasn't doing that, I ended up running a kind of cobbled together changeling game for her and a couple other of the students using decks of cards because like we didn't have any d10s out there so yeah. i mean this entire thing was clutched together like whoa <laughs> and what i could remember of the rules because we didn't have books so <laughs> i made up my own little like three-page book um but yeah that's that's kind of the i think the amuse bouche of of our friendship is is writing and gaming and the mask of mirrors came out of that because i offered a couple of years ago to run a game for marie as a birthday present for her <laughs> And some of the RP between her PC and a couple of my NPCs became the seed for this story. Uh, I don't know if... Yeah. Well, it, it, it's given rise to more than one thing of writing, because I didn't realize you were going to mention that game at the field school. Oh, but the, yeah. The Varakai novellas that I've published with Tor.com I basically have their roots in the character that I created for that Changeling yeah, game. Yeah, because Rui was your character for that Changeling game. Coldforged and- Flame owes a lot to that campaign, actually, in a weird, very mutated way. Wow, there's there's a lot that came from this game. And, yeah. well, and, and Midnight Never Come, too, because that was based on the, the well, yeah. offshoot game uh, that yeah, you basic- ran. The, the very try to condense this form is Alyssa ran this tabletop game. Then we were at the same school in graduate school where I played in a Changeling LARP that Alyssa was one of the STs for. And I took my character from the field school game and kind of reworked her for the LARP and then reworked her 
into the novellas. But I also ran a connected tabletop game, a, a game that was connected to that LARP, which kind of turned into the Onyx Court books. And this makes it sound like everything I've written actually comes from games, and it's not true, <laughs> but it's happened more than once. <laughs> I mean, not that there would be anything bad with that, right? I mean, I think quite a few writers have had their stories come from games. Yeah, there's a lot of gamers out there. Um, I think it used to ha- have more of a kind of a patina of illegitimacy or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because of the, like, you know, an alpha dwarf and a ranger walk into a dungeon kind of, you know, it came from my game as opposed to the more, like, varied types that you get now. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, so that's how you met, but uh, how did you decide on the specific name of M.A. Carrick? <laughs> uh, so <laughs> we knew going into this that our publisher might ask us for a joint name. So we figured we should have one ready that we were happy with. Uh, and they did ask us that, so it was a good thing we'd prepared. Um, and one of the first things I did was I said, well, okay, how did James S.A. Corey pick their name? Like, let's use that as a, a starting point. So I went and looked, and it turns out one of them, their middle name is James, and the other one's middle name is Corey. And if we did that, we would be Marie Marie, <laughs> which was not going to work. Uh, Marie is my middle name. Uh, and it's my middle and, name. And also Alyssa's. So, yeah, that was a, a non-starter. Yeah. And I kind of tried to think about, like, could I pull, like, a name from my family tree or something, but none of them were, like, clicking for me. And eh. and then I thought, well, we met at this field school, which was at a place in Wales called Castel Hentlis. And Castel is literally the Welsh word for castle, so that seemed a little too on the nose for a fantasy author. Uh, and Hentlis, I'm like... We're going to keep hitting that Welsh double L. And that's that's double just L, gonna, man. Yeah, there's just going to be a problem here. But as Alyssa mentioned, part of the field school was in Ireland in a town called Carrick-Macross. And Carrick-Macross is way too long to use as a name on a cover. Ask me how I know. My legal last name is Neuenschwander. Um, <laughs> but I thought Carrick sounds good. M.A. Carrick. And then I, I was thinking this up on my way to bed, which is when I get all my best ideas. Alyssa had long since gone to sleep. So I went to bed kind of with this like, oh, shit, I hope Alyssa likes it tomorrow because I'm now really attached to this name that like M for Marie, A for Alyssa, Carrick, there we go. And so the next morning I pitch it. And I like I actually it's funny because I reviewed the chat record because I, I just wanted to kind of see uh, uh, what exactly I said. But basically, Emery's like, I have this idea and I really hope you like it. And I wonder if you're going to guess where it's from. And she said, M.A. Carrick. And I was like, oh, my God, Carrick McCross. That's brilliant. And also, it's even more brilliant because it's like a cross between Marie and Alice. So M.A. is a cross for Carrick. <laughs> yeah. And Marie was like, I didn't even think of that part. And I was like, the levels go deeper. <laughs> yeah, so Carrick Ma Cross, M-A crossed into Carrick. It, it ended up being oh so clever. Um, and so we're really glad that we have a name that we liked and that our publisher said, yeah, go with yeah. that. Because <laughs> if they tried to tell us to do something else, we would have had a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I love kind of the deeper meaning behind that. And I love the story behind that because I, I half expect you to just be like, nope, like this was the place. And so that was immediately what we thought about. But kind of sounds like you got there organically. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's it's indicative of like something that happened several times, which is that one of us would come up with an idea and be like, oh, I really like this. I'm really attached to it all of a sudden. I really hope the other like the other one likes it because I'm going to be really devastated if they don't. Um, for example, there was a, a character that we had to rename uh, for the book, and we were really struggling with the rename. 
And then I was driving to work one morning and it just came to me and I was like, ah, I love this name. It's perfect. And I got to work and I sent Maria an email and then had to wait until she woke up because we have like a slightly different schedule. (laughs) Just Um, a wee bit. (laughs) Just a wee bit. Uh, But she liked it. So it was good. It it, it all worked out. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I think the name of the character is spoilery, though, so I don't I don't want to say it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, especially for a book where every character seems to have multiple names that they go by as well. <laughs> there, there might be some identity complexity going on here. Yeah, <laughs> Just yeah. a little bit. Just a little bit. Well, uh, so we've gone long enough without actually talking about the book. So do you have a pitch for The Mask of Mirrors? So I lost the rock, paper, scissors on this one. <laughs> <laughs> we both hate trying to do the elevator pitch. Consistently, I hear that from everyone. No one likes giving a pitch. <laughs> we actually sat down for like an hour with... Uh, David Levine at, I want to say it was like the Nebulas. The Nebulas. It was the Nebula weekend uh, and just got his help like workshopping our pitch. Because <laughs> most good at that. It's most I've ever worked on 100 words in my life. Um, <laughs> but okay, so here goes. <clears throat> Alter Renata Viraudex is actually a Renza Lenskaya, a con artist who infiltrated the nobility in an attempt to set herself up with a cushy life, only to run afoul of the Rook a Dread Pirate Robert-style vigilante whose mission is to oppose the nobility, including the increasingly popular Alta Renata. Capers, banter, double crosses, and identity hijinks ensue. Think the Scarlet Pimpernel meets Lee Bardugo's Six of Crows with a dash of Scott Lynch's Lies of Loch Lamora. How's that? I love it. Yeah, that's brilliant. Uh, and I think I got all of those elements as well. And from your explanation, I, I'm guessing that maybe one or both of you are a little bit of a fan of The Princess Bride? Just a little bit. <laughs> when I am made to do the elevator pitch, I have a tendency to just say fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, and miracles. So, yeah, <laughs> quite the quote the movie verbatim, but every time we watch it, it's just both of us just mouthing along. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just a wee bit. I was going to say, that was incredibly impressive how quickly you fired that off. <laughs> I, there was one time where I was stuck in a car with a friend in a giant traffic accident, or not, like traffic jam, and this it was in high school, I think. Uh, and I may have actually recited the entire movie. Um, <laughs> I don't think I could do that now. I would stumble on some things, but yeah. There was like, a time. I, I studied fencing. I studied Spanish. Can you tell which character I imprinted on? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. That's so impressive. Uh, well, so how did the co-writing work? Because I think you both said before that you're a little bit more on the discovery writing end of the spectrum, but something as complex as the Rook and the Rose and also co-writing together seems like it might need a little bit more. Yeah, we we definitely have had to both learn to be a bit more plotters because my usual method, and I think Alyssa's is the same, of where the story is going is this like nebulous evolving cloud in my head doesn't work when there are two heads involved. Like I cannot just telepathically beam my sense of the story (laughs) into Alyssa's skull. Yet. Yet. I mean, uh, but the the process that we've used, I mean, we definitely have done a lot more planning. There's a color-coded spreadsheet that tracks, like, how long each scene is and how long each chapter is. Like, it adds it up, uh, color-coded so that we can see where we're using different points of view and so on. Uh, There have been numerous things of... uh, putting like index cards out across my living room floor as we start moving scenes around to try to figure out, okay, this should go into this chapter, but then that means that chapter before it's going to need something else in it, that sort of thing. We have a whiteboard that's a murder board. (laughs) It doesn't actually have any red string. Like we have not yet done the red string leading from one thing to another, but... (laughs) 
But the actual writing process uh, does actually owe a lot to what Alyssa said about where this book came from, because, yeah, Alyssa was running this game, which, to be clear, just for the audience's awareness here, when I said I wanted a game for my birthday, I thought (laughs) it would be nice if someone ran me a (laughs) one-shot. Years later, the campaign is still going. Okay, and and to be fair, when I offered to run the game, I thought, all right, this is going to be six sessions straight out of the box. No, like, I'm just going to buy a module and I'm going to run it and I'm only going to run the exciting bits. I'm not going to make any customizations. (laughs) Famous last words. That lasted about (laughs) past the first page of the module where I took exception to some of the themes around colonialism and imperialism. And I was like, nope, we're writing, rewriting all of this. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, so we, we had this thing where there was some stuff going on with my PC that didn't really involve the other players. And we saw, thought, you know, it's not going to be super interesting for them to just sit there. And also it was some caper stuff where in some ways trying to do that as a game wasn't going to be as satisfying because like capers don't go well when it's, oh, but you rolled badly at the exciting moment and now the whole thing falls apart, right? Yeah. So and we thought, especially when it was like just your character. So it didn't really involve right. any of the other exactly. characters. It was yeah. my character and some NPCs. Yeah. Um, one of whom you will be shocked to know is uh, Vigilante. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, we kind of talked it over and we're like, well, let's just try like writing a scene as like a little bit of fanfic for the game. So we did that and it was a lot of fun. Uh, and so we wrote some more. Uh, and then when we had written about 50,000 words of scenes for the game that we said, hey, maybe we should try writing a novel. <laughs> but because we came into it from that direction, the way that we do the writing for the novel is actually very similar because for the game scenes, I would write, it's all from, that stuff is all from my PC's perspective. And so I would write her thoughts and her dialogue and her actions. And Alyssa would write all of the NPCs and we kind of trade off on environmental stuff, but also with some back and forth where if it's just like a brief response from NPC, maybe I'll put it in and, and continue writing onward and vice versa. Uh, and so that's actually how we write the novel as well, that like Ren is kind of more my character to write, though Alyssa will still write Ren bits. Uh, Gray and Vargo being the other two large point of view characters, uh, those are more Alyssa's. And then characters like Denia, it depends, like if Ren's talking to Denia, then Alyssa writes Denia, but if Gray's talking to her, then I'm the one writing her. Um, but then we all, you know, go back through and revise each other's stuff. We both revise all of the things. Uh, and so barring some bits where I can say, oh, yeah, I know that Alyssa wrote that bit because I remember going, oh, that's good <laughs> yeah. when I saw the line. <laughs> we, like, even we can't find the scenes anymore for Yeah, the I was going to say, there, there's, there's very few point, things I can point to and say, yep, Marie wrote that part. The, yeah. the one exception being the prologue, which is brilliant and intimidating because I ended up having to write the prologue for the second book and I had to live up to that prologue. Prologue, and which everybody always goes on about how great the prologue is, and I'm like, ah, oh no, yes, it is great. <laughs> so yeah, so I also think it's really fascinating that both of you studied anthropology and folklore because I can't really think of a more perfect background for writers of fantasy. <laughs> it's almost like we planned it that way. I, I tell people I did not pick my majors by asking what would be useful to me as a fantasy writer, but that's kind of how it ended up. Yeah. Uh, so I guess, yeah, how do you see that influencing your writing styles? Um, it almost might be easier to answer how it doesn't influence them. <laughs> like, it is everywhere. Um, I I have, tongue-only, somewhat-in-cheek, described this trilogy as when anthropologists attack. Because uh, <laughs> we, I mean, this is a large part of the way in which I think we make a good writing pair, that for both of us, the world isn't just kind of 
the the sort of thing where okay we've got this one idea of a world in which blah is true and then that's kind of like the the sum total of it instead everything about the world integrates with the characters and the plot like the the kinds of uh things that the characters do and think and the kinds of problems they face are all really growing out of the setting and it means that also i uh, we just we look for places to do something other than the default just all over the place uh you know okay if it's the clothing if it's the food if it's uh the kinds of festivals that they have whatever i uh, you know, we say, okay, we need this scene going on. Well, what could be going on in the background? Well, maybe there's this holiday that's happening or something like that. It's pervasive through everything that we do. And I think we also kind of, uh, because of an, we have that kind of like anthro- anthropological, I can't speak suddenly, that anthropological background, <laughs> um, we're very aware of how worldview tends to a, be complicated, and B, inform everything and arise out of the kind of history and environment. That's one yeah. of the death kind of time, yeah. benchmarks of, of anthropology is that everything arises out, yeah, death and time. And so we end up getting a lot of things that don't necessarily seem to be related, but the underpinnings of them come from this shared worldview of a culture. And since we have multiple cultures in the novel, you actually get those kind of conflicting, like, you know, tides meeting from different bodies of water or things like that. We had that. to invent two of everything. That was great. <laughs> exactly. Two of everything. And then how those kind of combined and came together in a, a meeting place, because yeah. <laughs> Nadezhda itself is is a place of kind of hybrids mm-hmm. uh, and crossovers. Right. And I guess real quick, since you said you had to invent two of everything, is that another split between the two of you or is that something else? No, we, it was more of a joint thing, like that we would okay. uh, together but decide what we wanted to do for each side of it. We didn't divvy yeah. up where like one of us did the Leganti stuff and the other Versenian. Um, yeah. We're both too prone to saying, ooh, I've got an yeah, idea. Yeah, in a lot of cases, it was just like brainstorming sessions where we'd be right. like, ooh, what about this? And then we could do this. And yeah, so it was much more a collaborative uh, world building. Um, and I think the other thing that can be challenging, but I actually like it about the way we communicate our world building is we also take a very anthropological perspective. So we do not do info dumps. Like <laughs> I, I think if anything, we under info dump. And I think that might be one of the challenges readers might run across is that they get dumped into the world without necessarily getting everything explained. And that's because we kind of are trying to have the activities and actions and plots and things that happen in the world um, show rather than tell what what those systems are. So like the politics or the economics or, you know, pattern, things like that. I, I'm about to be incredibly nerdy. We Clifford Geertz this shit up. <laughs> we totally Clifford Geertz this shit up. <laughs> the two people listening to this podcast who know who Clifford Geertz is. Thick description, man. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I will say, uh, so my nerdy contribution to that is, like, when I reached the point where I actually realized what, like, Earthwise and Sunwise and all of that meant, I, like, got up and walked around and it was like, oh, it was like, okay, this is... This is probably a detail I shouldn't be freaking out over. (laughs) Well, and and that's an example where we... We it started actually with the astrology because we wanted some way to say basically direct and retrograde in astrology, except we didn't want to use those words because it's a different astrological system. And looking at kind of historical English words for talking about directionality stuff, 
um, clockwise sometimes gets called sunwise. And so I was like, sunwise sounds good. And then we decided on earthwise for the counterclockwise type thing. And the next thing we knew, it's showing up as like a way of talking about if somebody's right-handed, they're sun-handed. And if they're left-handed, they're earth-handed. It ended up being a way of talking about gender. It went into the time system of the sun hours and the earth hours. And if we ever write something into the story where like characters are dividing up into teams for a game, I'm betting you it's going to be the sun team and the earth team. Like <laughs> yep. It just went everywhere because that's how it works, right? That if you have these sorts of motifs, then they're going to get applied in a bunch of different places. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Um, and so one of the world building things you mentioned in there was the clothing. And I will say that I haven't really read a book where fashion and clothing and sewing in particular plays such like a key role in the plot. Uh, so yeah, could you expand on that a little bit? Uh, yeah, so we we knew like and this was true even in the the tabletop version of the game, that clothes were going to be a huge part of the way that Ren sold her con um, in fashion, because she has a secret weapon, with, which is her sister, Tess, who's a genius at design and construction, and even has a little bit of a magical touch to making things better, which is uh, one of our tripart magic system in the book, which we call imbuing. But uh, so I'm I am I am nowhere near Tess's levels of skill. <laughs> You're closer than I am. <laughs> <laughs> but I have done a bit of costuming for stage and historical recreation. And so I'm I'm kind of interested in that and in, in diving into that. And uh Marie has also she she undersells herself, but she's done some sewing and design too. Um, because I've seen that uh the the Regency naval uniform that you created and it's gorgeous. I had um, a pattern. <laughs> You know, my sewing <laughs> got better when I stopped trying to make patterns for myself <laughs> and started actually buying them. It got so much easier. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we we actually sat down with uh, some reference materials and brainstormed just a list of uh, elements from clothing that we and, and styles and different eras and, and different cultures that we liked, and then kind of narrowed them down to a couple of looks: one for the Leganti nobility, uh, and then the other for the native Rusenians, and then kind of uh, hybrid looks uh, that the general that the general populace would kind of wear, and then upper and lower class versions of the same silhouettes, uh, because obviously you get kind of a, a, a trickle down. <laughs> effect with fashion um, and and things becoming trying to mimic but also kind of becoming a lot more functional uh, the the more you get into working kind of working people um, so yeah so we we got in pretty deep with that because it's something we we're both interested in and I ended up taking it even a step further because I patterned out all those ideas because I wanted to kind of check for issues of construction and any other kinds of quirks that would come along. I don't know that any of that actually ended up getting into the book, although I know that I fixed some of the stuff around the sleeves because I couldn't figure out our original design. Our original design didn't quite work. And so I had to kind of rejigger that. There um, is so much stuff that doesn't make it into the book. So much stuff. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and I keep saying I'm going to sew some a few of the outfits someday. Uh, so I should get on that. <laughs> well, whenever we have in-person physical conventions again, right? That sounds like a fantastic cosplay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm hoping we get some cosplayers. That would be awesome. Yeah. And so we talked about some of the world building before, but I as kind of a fantasy magic system geek, I really love kind of there's two main systems. Well, maybe maybe three, but there's two that get more attention. Uh, and I understand that you kind of divided those between the two of you. So there's the, I'm probably going to butcher this horribly, Numenatria? Is that Numenatria. Yeah. 
Yeah. Numenatria. Yeah, okay. okay. And then the pattern. So I guess, uh, could you kind of describe how you broke that up and what went into those? Um, so you're right that we, we, we do have three and, um, they're interlinked and Numenatria is the kind of scientific, you know, nobody listening can see my air quotes, but they're there. <laughs> uh, and that's based on sacred geometry and numerology. Uh, and then pattern is divinatory and intuitive. Uh, and there's some people in the setting who view that as a negative. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a um, viewing, which is the redheaded stepchild that nobody respects. Yeah. And, and is, is it's because that's a crafting based magic. So that's actually kind of difficult to systematize, even though we have a good understanding of where it comes from and how it works. Um, but uh, in the tabletop game, because Marie's character uh, was a pattern reader, she'd already done a lot of development. And so when we started to kind of revise everything and, 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 and design the world for, our, for, for the book, uh, she ended up taking pattern because it was close to her character and she'd already kind of delved into that. And since I have a love for ritual magic and kind of ritual magic styles. And since Vargo, who's the crime lord character, who's our Numenatria expert, is more in my stable than Marie's, I ended up taking on the, the development for Numenatria and just ended up having a lot of fun with magical math. There was, a, there was a book that Marie loaned to me, and I meant to make a note of what it was called. Uh, it's called A Beginner's Guide to Constructing the Universe, A Mathematical Journey from 1 to 10 or something like that. Yes. Uh, it's definitely and, a beginner's guide to constructing a universe, that part I'm sure of. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that ended up being like one of my main resources for uh, kind of taking the the observations that book makes about um, ge uh, geometric shapes uh, in nature and in astro astronomy and all those kinds of things and the various kinds of meanings that tend to accumulate around those. So I, I, I ended up using that a lot to kind of extrapolate out and develop Numenatria. And then I spent a lot of time uh, drawing <laughs> geometric figures with a compass, a pencil, and an edge, because that's how you're supposed to do it in the book. That's um, all you need, right? <laughs> that is all you need. I have my compass, my edge, my chalk, myself. I need nothing more to know the cosmos, which I, I love that phrase. Yeah. Um, though I, I'm just so amused because when we came up with the idea of Numenatria, I was like, well, I've got this book. The last time I read it was in high school, so I can't really vouch for if it's any good. But here, let me loan it to you. And this was like over the weekend. And come Monday, Alyssa's like, let me present Numenatria. <laughs> it basically just exploded out of your head in one go. It, it really did. Yeah. And like a five page document, like detailing the complexity of it. Yeah. And then because it's tied so closely with Numenatria, I ended up developing the astrological system. Yeah. Um, uh, and kind of how, because uh, astrological charts are also very important, uh, but they're not like the planets are different, the way that the, the year is different, the, the months and the weeks are, are all organized differently. And so we had to come up with a whole new system for that because we couldn't just have, you know, a 12 month cycle where, you know, and yeah. Yeah. It's a completely That'd different calendar too easy. and everything. Yeah. <laughs> too easy. Yes. We don't let ourselves have things easy is what you're getting from this. Yeah. Although I will say that there's a, there's a fantasy calendar app that yes. we use that is a godsend, especially when we decided we wanted two moons. Yeah. <laughs> what what us, is that called, if you know the name? It, fantasy Calendar. Yes, oh, I okay. think it's well. fantasy-calendar.com <laughs> is, is, is where it is. And I know um, uh, I know they have some kind of Patreon, and it doesn't look like they have very many patrons. So, you know, people should go check that out because it's really well designed. Um, yeah. 
so then the pattern side of things, um, yeah, it's uh, we didn't want something that was just going to be the tarot with some different names slapped on the cards. We wanted something that was going to be a separate system. And uh, actually, I, I think it's already come up a little bit. You'll hear that when we talk about this world, a lot of kind of textile metaphors come up in the talking about the story and the world building and everything. And that's partly because of the pattern that we thought, okay, we want a deck. We need a name for it. We hit on the word pattern and thought, that sounds good because fate. And then about five seconds later, textile metaphors had just pervaded everything in the setting. Yeah, because I think it, like we almost immediately went like to the different threads of the suit, like instead of suits, having different threads. Yeah, uh, yeah. so the, the three different yeah. suits are referred to as threads, and they're the spinning thread, the woven thread, and the cut thread, which represent, the spinning thread is your inner self, so that's mental and spiritual kinds of matters. The woven thread is your outer self, which is social relationships and society. And then the cut thread is your physical self, so it's matters of the body and material reality and so forth. So those are kind of the themes that each of the suits have. Which and with the, mm. I, I was going to say, which I, I'm going to give a little space because this might be spoilery and we might need to cut it out. But I will say that the magic systems are reflected, or th that also reflects the magic system because Numenatria is kind of the mental one. The mental one and pattern is the social one and imbuing is the physical crafting one. Yeah. Um, so that kind of had a nice parallel there that I don't think ever comes out explicitly in the book, no. but it's there. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's lots of this kind of layering going on. Uh, then within one of the threads, um, there's two kinds of cards or, or sort of three. There's unaligned cards, which are just sort of your normal uh, ones that would be numerical in a numbered deck. Uh, and then these sort of court cards are the faces and the masks. And this has to do with a religion thing. It was one of the first world building ideas we had for this setting, I think. We were both very annoyed with D&D uh, &D kinds of worlds where there are these evil gods, which people openly worship in a yay evil kind of way like that's not how religion <laughs> not how actually works, works. Um, <clears throat> that with you know gods of things like uh death and you know conflict and so forth uh that the the worship of them tends to be we are trying to propitiate this god so that they won't do bad things to us and so the thing that we came up with is that Versenian deities have faces and masks. The face is the benevolent side, and the mask is the malevolent side. So you get things like, um, you know, the the face of gold is the card that refers to like commerce and wealth and so on. But the mask of hollows is the one that refers to poverty and loss and that kind of thing. So each of the threads has uh, pairs of face and mask cards that actually refer to important Versenian deities by these kinds of uh, uh, sort of epithet type names for them. Uh, there's multiple different layouts that you can do with the pattern deck. The one that gets seen the most often, uh, though I actually think we split it between the two. There's a nine card spread that you do to kind of see somebody's whole pattern. And you see that in the, the long version of the cover copy that you'll see on online sites has the line, this is your past, the good and the ill of it, and that which is neither, this is your present, etc. This is your future. That has to do with the nine card layout. There's also a three card line, which is more for, uh, I have this problem, like what should I do about it? Uh, we introduce a seven card layout in the second book. So there's a couple different ways to read them. And there's also just a, a quick, like, I'm going to draw a card. Right. Yeah. You can just draw thing. a single card. Yeah. Uh, and we actually have, uh, just as of the day that we're recording this, basically, there's a <laughs> widget live on our website where you can go to macarrick.com and do either a three-card line or a nine-card spread on the website. So if you want to kind of test drive the pattern deck for yourself, you can go see it there. Yes, I will say when I was uh, prepping for this interview, I did lose quite a bit of time on that, just playing around with it. That's oh. <laughs> really cool. So yeah, that 
I don't know if you guys coded that yourself or what, but no. that was really cool. <laughs> no, I, I saw actually, Yunha Lee actually has on his website a widget that somebody coded for the kind of, uh, uh, Jengzai is the name of the deck uh, that exists in his Hex Arcade books. And so I actually emailed Yun and said, who made that for you? <laughs> and then, um, emailed the, the woman responsible and said, hey, we would like to hire you. Yeah. And she did a great job. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, it's only it's only textual uh, at this point. But I know that uh, we, we have dreams of potentially uh, like, you know, crowdfunding a, a physical pattern deck where we can, you know, hire, like hire an artist, pay them like, you know, actual money. Yeah, like real work. money that artists real deserve. Money. Yes. <laughs> pay your artists. I will happily shell out for that. <laughs> so please let me know if that does go live. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're hoping that the series does well enough to build up the interest in there being something like that, because it's not cheap to do something like that if you want to pay the artists the money that they should be paid. But we would love to have an actual physical illustrated pattern deck. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And I personally, I know a lot of people who would be very interested in something like that. Uh, so fingers crossed. Well, uh, so you do sort of on your website tease the existence of a Rook in the Rose soundtrack. Uh, so when we're recording this, that soundtrack has not been made public yet, unless it literally went up today. Uh, no, I, I almost did it right before the interview. And then I thought the interview's not going live while you record it. You can do it after the interview. It will <laughs> yes. be live by the time this goes up. <laughs> okay, perfect. Um, but yeah, so yes. So those of you listening to this, it is live and you can go and check that out. Uh, but I guess, can you share just what any of those songs are? Uh, yeah. So as a background thing, I listen to a lot of music while I'm writing, uh, most of it instrumental because that is less distracting to me, though there have been exceptions. Um, and so I listen to a lot of film scores, TV, uh, some video games and such. Uh, in this case, a lot of what I was drawing on, I, the, the Versenians, obviously the language is based sort of on Slavic phonology, which that doesn't mean they're entirely a Slavic culture. There's lots of elements that went into creating them, but it didn't stop my subconscious from saying, I want Slavic music. And so <laughs> it gets what it wants. Uh, so I've been using, uh, one of the first things recommended to me was the soundtrack to the third Witcher game, which really is good. And then I've also been using uh, more recently music from the TV show, uh, though that aired after I had made the soundtrack for the first book. So you don't see it in the first book soundtrack. Uh, and also a bunch of uh, Slavic bands as well. And then uh, I'll admit there's a fair bit from Game of Thrones on there because Ramin Jawadi is one of my composer crushes. <laughs> and he did some really good music for, for Game of Thrones. Uh, Trevor Morris is another one that features pretty heavily in there. Uh, Though the the one specific song that I think would be sort of recognizable to people that I would name off rather than obscure film scores that I have drawn on, uh, there is a song from the musical The Scarlet Pimpernel, which is called The Riddle. And essentially, if you want to feel for the Rook and Rose trilogy, go it's listen to The of, Riddle. It's kind of the theme song. <laughs> yeah, that, that is basically Rook and Rose in a nutshell. Go listen to The Riddle. You're done. Yeah. <laughs> and so... I mean, you a, should still read the book, but... Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I, it's not on the soundtrack for the first book, only because in terms of position in the story, it fits better for the second book, but it will be on the soundtrack for that one when I put it up. And yeah, I, I post the track listing on the site, and then I will have a link to a Spotify playlist with however much of my obscure life library of film music Spotify actually recognizes because <laughs> I run into the problem that a lot of the things I use, it just goes, I've never heard of that, which I don't say to be a hipster or anything, just that my taste is odd. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, I'm definitely the same way. If I'm ever trying to get work done, I try to avoid vocals and lyrics and everything because then I just start thinking about that. The worst is typing words while listening to words for me. I don't know if oh, that's yeah. your thing. <laughs> I, I actually can't uh, listen to music at all. Well, yeah, I, write. Very... I can, I can do, I can do like white noise of like a coffee shop or something like that. But yeah, so I, I tend not to soundtrack as much and the soundtrack I do have is much more like for the entire game. So there are a couple songs that I think of as Rook and Rose songs, but they're more game songs than yeah. the novel <laughs> version of the songs. And, and those have become two different beasts in my head. Yeah, uh, I think. Now, yeah. Ly lyrics can be distracting to me too, unless I have listened to the song so many times that they effectively become white noise. The first novel that I wrote, uh, which is now published as uh, Lies and Prophecy, there's a particular song that I've probably listened to over a thousand times while writing that book. And so, yeah, there's English words in it, but mostly it just kind of goes right past me. <laughs> Uh, well, so another question is this last year has been somewhat interesting. I think that might be the understatement of the century that is 2020. <laughs> uh, so given that the Mask of Mirrors has been in the works for over three years now, uh, how has the pandemic affected or changed your feelings about masks in these books? Um, so I think I, I, it's, I think it's an unfortunate coincidence just that that but i think that the culture around mass in the book is so separated from like the importance masks have become in terms of for disease profession uh, that disease prevention and everything that i i don't even really think of them similarly like they they occupy two, two different boxes in my head um, marie kind of talked about the the origin of the idea about the you know propitiating the masks and and asking for blessings from the faces and so that is, yeah, that's just like a different category. And I don't really, when I think of the masks in the book, they, I don't think of kind of masses, they've become significant yeah. and important in so contemporary. Admittedly, we do have a disease phobic character who at one point picks up a mask, which he's been told is imbued to protect against diseases. <laughs> that's yeah. a little, though it could be worse. We could be Seth Dickinson put out a book that features a plague in 2020. And I'm just like, yeah. oh, oh, I am so sorry for him. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know if plagues in books are just like a really common thing, but there's been a lot of books in the last year or so I feel like that have plagues. <laughs> I feel like part of it is just that we've noticed them so much more yeah. distinctly than we would have had if they'd come out in 2019. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like what, I'm probably going to get the name of this wrong. I think it's A Song for a New Day by Sarah Pinsker. I think that's the book that yeah. has like very, very uh, similar yep. parallels to reality. Yeah, in some ways, yeah. Uh, so we, we don't have that kind of thing. And in fact, for book two, we were contemplating at one point a plot that probably would have led to there being some disease-based stuff. And we just kind of said, let's we toss that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, because we ended up writing book two pretty much over the summer. So, you know, we were right in the thick of it. And we were like, yeah, that's that's just not going to... We don't want to We don't want to think about that <laughs> yeah. right now. And, and a little bit also like... Writing fantasy is hard in the current day because there really is an element of anything oh, horrible we think of is probably not as bad as some of the things that are going on in the real world. And so it's like, you know, stop challenging us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like we, we tried to make our villains seem really bad <laughs> and then but, reality outdid us. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I I will say, though, uh, a slight pivot on that note that either my sense of bad has been so skewed by 2020 or uh, there's extra complexities going on over the course of the series. But it felt like there weren't all that many villains that we saw. A lot of people who would typically be like these harsh anti-heroes, they're like kind of lovable and adorable in their own sort of <laughs> twisted way. So the, the way that we kind of discussed this when we were just setting out to start writing the series is that we think of it as being sort of anti-grimdark, not in the sense that everything is puppies and kittens and rainbows, but in the sense that the trajectory of the story is the opposite of grimdark, that we start with characters who are like very scarred and cynical and untrusting. Oh my God, Ren has trust issues. <laughs> Like, yeah, lifetime <laughs> subscriptions. Uh, and there's a lot of things in the world that are not good, but the trajectory of it is toward the characters can heal, they can learn to trust people, they can make the world a better place around them. And so it is very much not the grimdark trajectory of everything will get worse and worse until maybe you scrape a victory out of the mud and blood at the very <laughs> end, and then, you know, slink off to nurse your wounds or something. It's the opposite of that trajectory. So, yeah, I, I think... Neither of us is a, really a fan of the super cynical and grim kind of thing. Uh, we would rather see characters who are, you know, they're damaged in a lot of ways, but it is a story of how you can heal from that and things can get better. Yeah. And I mean, I think we do have, uh, it, it's funny because I, I kind of, there is not a character in the story, even the ones who are very, like, are awful, yeah, who, are I don't, who I don't love because i i, <laughs> I um, it would be a spoiler for me to state the ways in which i might differ on that point but there are a few people that i'm just like nope they're just assholes <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think we, we we might have a slightly different philosophy but i'm like i i i kind of even horrible characters like i i almost revel in their their horribleness because i, I try to think of them as as people who are flawed rather than thinking that they're evil um and so having that kind of double vision on them of like yes this is person this person is objectively uh a evil but within their own kind of understanding of what they're trying to do and their justification self-justifications for themselves i i i do not believe that people think of themselves as evil we even when no, i, I don't yeah. think they think of themselves evil as evil but I'll pick one that won't be a spoiler. Metzen just kind of needs to be kicked in the balls repeatedly. <laughs> oh, he's, he's a horrible, horrible person. Yes, on on multiple levels. <laughs> uh, just to clarify, he was not one of the people I said was kind of lovable and adorable in their own twisted <laughs> <No>. ways. <laughs> well, uh, you did mention that you've already written book two. Uh, so I guess what can readers expect for the future of M.A. Carrick? Uh, Rook and Rose is a trilogy, so there's going to be three books. The second book is currently slated to come out in November, so about 10 months after the first one. Uh, and we have started the planning for the third book, though we haven't started drafting it yet, bar the random little bit that I wrote partway through book two because my brain handed it to me and said, write this down now. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I want to ask. Uh, you'll need to tell me later what part, what is that? Because I don't know. The, the very opening. I told you about it at the time, but that was also like six oh, months ago. Right. So. Yes, 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 I know what you're talking about. Okay. <laughs> uh, I've also written a little bit of short fiction. There's a short story called As Tight as Any Knot that's going to be coming out in Beneath Ceaseless Skies um, at right at the beginning of January, actually. So depending on when this airs, it may or may not be out okay. already. Yes, so that, that will be out already because okay. this should be airing close to uh, the release of The Mask of Mirrors. Cool. Um, 
Uh, and there's another uh, probably novelette that I am working on for a charity anthology that's going to go into some stuff about the origins of the Rook. Uh, there's another story that I'm working on that's more sort of a piece of folklore from the setting. And actually, Alyssa and I have these grand plans of we're just going to, without attempting to make any of it work as short stories in the modern sense, we're going to write a ton of the folklore that we've thought up for this and then like self-publish a little ebook that's here. You want all the mythology and folktales and legends and stuff? Just here you go. Yeah, because there's like, you know, or origins of the river and like the, the you know, trickster tales about the different cl- Versenian clan animals. Yeah. And all of this stuff is not the sort of thing that, that would be fitting for a short fiction market or anything like that. Right. It's, um, this is us being folklorists rather than being fiction authors. We're just like, yeah. we have these ideas and they're cool and they're not short stories at all because those are different things. Yeah. Or like there's there's a whole, there's there's a throwaway mention of stitch witchery, which is a kind of magic that is sort of numinatria and sort of imbuing that's practiced in another country that we never even go to. It's just- It's where Tess comes from. It's where Tess <laughs> comes from. It's just basically kind of Ireland, Wales-ish sort of place. Um Wilderland. <laughs> when we were when when <laughs> because a bad Irish accent is one of the accents I can do. So when I was portraying Tess in the game, she was Irish. So then we had to find a reason for her to be Irish, like to, to have like pseudo Ireland in the game because she was Irish in our head, damn it. I, I don't suppose you could demonstrate that bad Irish accent. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I can. It's going to be really bad. <laughs> I mean, it's it's kind of a Lucky Charms accent when you think about it. <laughs> well, on the other hand, I've spent a lot of time doing a really bad Russian accent, so... <laughs> and so when we run scenes together, it gets really confusing. <laughs> I love it. Those are both far better than any accent that I can do. I've actually been working on the Russian one because when I do readings from The Mask of Mirrors, I do... A scene from chapter three where I've got to do Ren as Renata Viraudox, who has a like received pronunciation British accent. Everybody in Nadezhra like normally sounds American, except the Versenian accent is a Slavic one, and I have to do all three of those in the course of a single scene. <laughs> that gets fun. And since people couldn't see my expression as I said that, that was the expression of fun has air quotes around it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, on the note of accents, I don't know if this is uh, necessarily like translates into an accent or anything, but something that I really noticed was instead of uh, doing like kind of the phonetic accents for some of the Brazilians, you'd switch up the grammatical structure and you yes. can tell how someone is speaking based on how the grammar of their sentences are. Yeah, it worked. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> that, is, that is almost entirely Marie because she's, she's the language person. I'm the economics person. Uh, <laughs> if you talk about division of labor in terms of what our interests are, I think, yeah. That's something that actually comes from when I was writing the last of the Onyx Court books with Fate Conspire, I decided I wanted to make one of the major characters a Cockney. And the whole like phonetic spelling thing is not a good way to try to handle that because number one, phonetic spelling gets air quotes around it too because it isn't, right? And people have different ideas for how they should be pronouncing those sounds. And it very, very rapidly tips over into seeming like mockery of other ethnic groups or of lower classes or whatever. And so I actually found an amazing book that's titled something like Cockney Past and Present or something like that, which went into what are the grammatical features of the way the Cockney dialect goes. And that was what I leaned into into writing Dedrick's dialogue in with Fate Conspire. I did mark the dropped H, but that was the only kind of phonetic thing that I did. Uh, 
So yeah, when we wanted to have Versenian speech be markedly different because Ren is code switching all the time throughout this book, I had to look for some things that would mark it out. And so yeah, there were a few things that we chose where it was like things about word order and things about not using... Uh, English has this thing that's actually officially called meaningless do, where when you say <laughs> like... Uh, what did you have for dinner yesterday? Other languages would say, what had what you had for, you dinner, for dinner, dinner yesterday? Yeah. And so that's a thing that you will see in the Versenian speech that I try to avoid using that. And I'm really glad that came through because there was <laughs> yes. a lot of work that went into trying to mark that visibly. Yeah. Especially because that that wasn't something that we uh, con- like really developed or concentrated in the first drafting of the book. You, Marie went back Marie went back in and, and did like a, a, a really thorough kind of uh, review of the Versenian dialogue, and and uh, and then I went in and went. This sounds like Yoda. This sounds like Yoda, and we kind of like toned it down a bit. <laughs> I, I do not recommend to any writers listening to this that you try to retrofit that afterward. Make yeah. your decisions beforehand and do it from the start because retrofitting is a terrible way to approach it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's much easier in the second book. Yeah, gotcha. Is that the kind of thing where, like, if you retrofit it, that also like ripples out and changes some stuff around it because of how it comes out, or can you just like actually change? There were line. a few things where I had to rewrite the way that the the conversations went just because the the phrasing wasn't really working with the way that we'd written it the first time. It didn't change anything plot-wise, but there were bits where I was like, yeah, this exchange between these two characters just needs to be kind of rewritten completely rather than me just moving two words around and deleting do. I think it did kind of streamline some things. Here's yeah. the do. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it that streamlined was a meaningful some, do. That was a meaningful do, yeah. I, th- I think it streamlined some things because... Um, because we could depend on the language uh, to signal some of the code switching, we yeah. were able to, um, I mean, not remove all of them because, you know, obviously we still want to signal to the readers that that's happening. Uh, but I think we were able to streamline that and, and make it more elegant and less clunky. And I think it really did just help sell the idea that Ren really is switching between these personas because yeah. you can look at the dialogue of Renata Viraudox versus Arenza Lenskaya and they don't sound the same, yeah. which we really wanted to make sure would happen. Now, I will say that the the accent thing uh, became interesting when we were uh, uh, basically during the ebook narrator audition process yeah. oh god because they had to do like seven or eight different voices Not that many but i mean tess does have to sound irish and then there's the slavic accent and the british accent and that yeah. did and also i ended up having to take the manuscript and mark for the narrator like where ren was switching especially with thoughts because we we had a couple different ways we could handle this that in the narration when you get an italicized thought what accent should that be in? And we ended up deciding that it would sort of signal how firmly was she in the persona versus was she slipping. And so I had to mark like, okay, this thought should sound British because she's very much being Renata right now, but then this thing happened and now she should sound Slavic. It got complicated. Yeah. That being said, I'm, I am really excited to, to hear the final product because the, the yeah. narrator that we, we got is uh, amazing. Like she, she her, her, her audition stuff was so good. So I'm really excited to hear what she does with it. I'm looking forward to that, too. I'm a big audiobook person, so I will probably be also listening to the audiobook just because I love audio so much. So, Good. yeah, I, I love that you actually marked up the manuscript and everything, because I don't know if that's like industry standard or anything, but I feel like it should be. 
I think most of the time it's not necessary because you don't have the degree of code switching that this book has, where even in the thoughts, it's like, okay, which accent is that character's thought going to be in? Like, yeah. Most books don't need that. <laughs> you can usually just say, okay, this character is like Mexican and therefore needs the accent for that. And then that's a blanket statement as opposed, because and Ren's not the only one who code switches either. Gray does the same thing. He does it less often, but we had to go through and be like, yeah, when is Gray being Versenian versus when is he being the kind of, I'll sound more, you know, Nadezhda to yeah. fit in. And, and Vargo does too on a class basis because yeah. he, he like, you know, he's, he's a crime lord, but he's also, um, you know, uh, coming up in the world. Yeah. And so he's code switching on, on a class but that's level. That's more of a grammatical thing than an accent one. That's um, true. And actually, the, uh, the, the lower class speech, that was me using the Cockney stuff again. Grammatically, they actually are using Cockney modes of speech kind of on a street level, even if they're not doing the pronunciation of Cockney. Right. And I, I will say another thing, other than just like the dialogue that I noticed, is kind of a lot with these code switchings, especially Ren, right? Because all of her names have like the Ren element embedded <laughs> yeah. in them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but like, you can tell in a scene like, oh, like it's, calling her Arenza, and then like someone says something and it calls her rent and it's like okay she's kind of like switching back and forth a little bit yeah 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 and that was something that we had to pay really close attention to because at one point there was the the suggestion from our editor that it would be simpler if we just always called her rent in the narration and we're like but no you lose so much of her yeah, getting it, into that role or falling or, or out of it slipping out of it yeah because yeah. yeah. i think i think we end up using ren a lot more during one particular sequence where she's having some difficulties staying yeah. in character right um, that i can't talk right. about <laughs> yeah i, I was going to ask how how much your editor enjoyed those parts so <laughs> our, our editor priyanka krishnan is great like she's amazing she's she's a really good audience for this book in the way that like she came into editing fantasy and science fiction out of like romance and historical fiction which both lend themselves really well in some ways to the kind of book that we're writing uh, and she also is not afraid to just kind of be a a fangirl at stuff when you know fangirling is called for and that's always really great as the authors for like yay somebody's enjoying what we're reading writing yeah i, I mean i think like a, 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 several of her her revision requests have been i want another scene with like this particular pair to like build their relationship yeah um uh so that's you know that's always nice to be like oh we get to write more scenes uh and then figure out how to fit them in so they don't feel like we just stapled them on <laughs> yeah and to do it without having the book get even longer than it already is exactly yeah yeah but i think um yeah i think she she she's had like just a really good she she knows the book we're trying to write and i think that that's like the best you can hope for in an editor is getting an editor who sees what you're trying to do and not only supports you in what you're doing but actually makes suggestions that improve the book like like improve the book towards the book you want to write. Right, that they can kind of see what's in your head rather than it being sort of a, okay, well, this is more just sort of a, a universal craft statement as opposed yeah. to something tailored toward where you're trying to go with it, uh, which is not to like diss on other editors, but there's a degree of kind of simpatico that sometimes happens and sometimes doesn't. Uh, and it, it can be like hit or miss, kind of like on the collaboration level, like the reason Alyssa and I can write this together <laughs> is because we've got that gestalt of, yeah, all right, we're, we're, we're on the same track basically yeah and that's and that comes also out of uh years of like being sounding boards for our own personal projects yeah. like yeah i'm i'm i i the moment i always think of is is when you were struggling with um uh uh 
Sanctuary of Wings? I think it uh, was. One of the memoirs, I, I will not say which one to slightly avoid spoilers, but Alice was there for the moment. At this point, the book's been out long enough that I'll, I'll, I'm willing to kind of say a slightly spoilery thing. I was stuck on what I was going to do with the end of the book. And then Alice can probably vouch. I got like the anime sparkly eyes and changed color background as I said, I need to King Tut this shit up. <laughs> and it was the right answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, that's awesome. And you did mention, so you have like this help with each other in your own independent projects. So we've talked about the future of M.A. Carrick, but uh, you're both accomplished writers in your own right. So is there anything you're working on individually that you can talk about? So, yeah, I have I have a novel, uh, a draft of a novel that I finished several years ago actually, before we started writing this. Um but it's too long. And when I say too long, we met, we met some resistance uh, from potential editors with the length of Mask of Mirrors. And Chiaroscuro, the, the uh, manuscript that I have, is even longer than <laughs> Mask of Mirrors. <laughs> um, so I'm working on revising that and breaking it apart. And it also, it, it bears some surface uh, similarities uh, to the Mask of Mirrors because it's also set in this Italian at port city with a lot of trade traffic. Uh, but the kind of design philosophy <laughs> I used to structure my world building for that one was alchemy. Um, so it's very informed by that. And there are these different races that are divided into materia. So you've got these flying bird people for the air uh, and sentient golems for fire and creepy mer people for water and then humans for earth. Um, and so I'm hoping to revise it so that Benichiaro, the, the city of that book, uh, doesn't feel like Ndezra Light. <laughs> uh, but I, I don't say, think it does. Having read it, I I think it feels like its own place. <laughs> I mean, it's it's vertical rather than horizontal, so it's more uh, Cinque Terre than than you know Venice than a river delta. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but it does have like a lot of the things that just I love that will be pretty much in any book that I have, which is you know diversity and ethnicity and culture. It's a queer normative world with lots of queer and gender queer characters. It's got pretty clothes. It's got masquerades. It's got politics and economics. So there's kind of no escaping. It's going to be in the same flavor profile, but yeah, I'm kind That's of working not a bad on thing. <laughs> differentiating uh, it a little bit. Um, for me, uh, it's actually a busy time for me right now. I had a book come yeah. out in August called Driftwood uh, that's actually a fix-up of a bunch of short stories I've been publishing for years, then with like new material and a frame story to make a short novel out of it. And that thing has done like amazingly well. I'm, I'm taken aback by how well it's done. It got starred reviews from like Publishers Weekly and Kirkus and Booklist. It made Kirkus's best books of 2020 list and also library journals. So like that thing has done so much better <laughs> than I thought when I was like, okay, I'll fix up a bunch of short stories and do sort of a novel shape thing. Wee! And then it's done really well. I mean, just the concept of Driftwood is is such an interesting concept. It did. I will say the Publishers Weekly Review uh, used the phrase hope in the face of apocalypse, which was also way more timely than I meant it to be for 2020. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then I've also got another book coming out uh, from a different publisher uh, the, the month after The Mask of Mirrors, which is The Night Parade of a Hundred Demons. It's a novel for the game Legend of the Five Rings, but you don't need to know the game at all to read it. It's based on something. The Night Parade of a Hundred Demons is an idea from Japanese folklore, and Legend of the Five Rings is in a setting that is kind of based on historical Japan. Uh, so if you want kind of more creatures from Japanese folklore than you can shake a stick at, <laughs> you can check that book out. Yeah, and I, I think possibly both of you have run some of those games before. So is that also another game to story? 
Uh, not directly, no. Okay. Uh, the way that I got into L5R was a friend invited me to play in a game, and then I ended up uh, pitching some stuff to the company that was publishing the RPG at the time. So I wound up writing for the RPG, started writing fiction for it when it got sold to a different company. And I did run a campaign, which I can see Alyssa wants to say something about in just a moment. Best but the, but game <laughs> ever. <laughs> <laughs> but the novel itself has no connection to anything from that game. It was just me saying, okay, uh, like first starting with the fact that my campaign was set in an AU version of the setting, which is not where the novel is set. So no direct connection, except that I am a fan of L5R. Yeah, I will say that as much as I say that the, the game that Rick and Rose is based on uh, was a birthday present, it was also kind of a thank you for best game ever. <laughs> like I really enjoyed I really enjoyed my character. I enjoyed my character arc. I enjoyed the the kind of romance that that Marie crafted for me that was even better than what I had originally pitched to her that I wanted. Another like, reference for the people what get it. Alice came to me and said, I kind of want a romance like Seishiro and Subaru in like Tokyo Babylon. I'm like, okay. <laughs> You're doomed. Say, no, no, no. Did I, I said X. Okay, you said X nineteen ninety-nine. Because I hadn't actually ever like read Tokyo Babylon, but you didn't know that. So you gave me Tokyo Babylon. Yeah. So it was a little bit more harrowing and, uh, you know, bad things <laughs> happening along the way that Alyssa had necessarily expected. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted like, you know, like enemies who were sexually attracted to each other and had a lot of hate sex. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it, it all worked out. They got their happy ending. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I guess something I always like to ask people is just, has there been any good books you've read lately that you'd like to talk about? Uh, I've actually been reading quite a lot this year, um, partly because I needed to get myself away from the computer and the news, and it's good to put like physical papers in front of yourself that are not going to be sending you notifications about things. <laughs> uh, so two that I've read within the last month, um, <clears throat> one, The Midnight Bargain by C.L. Polk, uh, <sighs> is the first book in a while that I, I go to bed regularly somewhere between 2 and 3 a.m. because I'm a night owl, and I stayed up past even my ridiculous bedtime reading this book at one point because I was enjoying it so much. And that doesn't happen to me very often anymore because I'm now enough of a professional author that I kind of see the machinery going. And it's really, really hard for a book to suck me in. But that one absolutely did. Uh, and then another one that I really enjoyed, Alatsue by uh, Darcy Little Badger, which is a YA novel uh, about a Lipan Apache character in Texas in kind of like an open urban fantasy world. And I grew up in Texas. So <laughs> I was like, yay! I mean, it's all in like fictional towns in Texas, but I, I still kind of got some Texas love off of that. And yeah, my my uh, recent book that I've been enjoying, um, and I'm in the middle of reading it, but I want to talk about it because I think it's amazing, and it's it's might not be something that fantasy readers will have run across. Uh, but Marie gave it to me a few months ago, and it's called uh, Confessions of the Fox, which I think she gave it to me because I like foxes. Yes. Um, <laughs> like, you can give me anything with foxes, and I'm like, yay. Um, but it's uh, it's by a transgender writer named jo Jordi Rosenberg, and it's a romance between these two gender-fluid thieves in 18th century London. Uh, so it's, you know, it's got some Rook and Rose kind of vibes as well. Um, but it's told through found documents in kind of a scholarly mode. And there are footnotes, a lot of footnotes. <laughs> but there's actually a lot of direct action and interaction. So it kind of goes back and forth between it. And it ends up going really metafictional in, in some really interesting ways. And it kind of it kind of reminds me a little bit of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, but it's it's a lot more fun. 
And it moves a lot at a, at a much faster clip. Like it's, it's I, I think glaciers move faster. I mean, I love Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, but glaciers move faster than it does. <laughs> um, but yeah, this this one's like, uh, it's it's on a rapid river rather than like the Mississippi or something. Um, and plus, it's super queer. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I am enjoying the heck out of that one. Uh, so thank you, Marie. You're welcome. Yeah. And what was the name of that book again? Because I might have oh. to check it out as well. Sorry, uh, Confessions of the Fox, and the author's name is Jordy Rosenberg. Perfect. Well, before we go, I would like to give each of you the chance to plug anything you want to get the word out about, if you have anything that uh, you want to share. I, I am always happy to plug my Patreon, which is called New Worlds, and my username on Patreon is swan underscore tower. Uh, it is all about world building. It is me having spent years saying, I really kind of want to write a book of stuff about world building, like advice for writers, but I have no idea how to wrangle that into book-shaped form. And then I realized, well, if I do it as a Patreon, I can do weekly essays instead, and then worry about book shape after I've written them. I'm nearly done with the fourth year of this Patreon. <laughs> it's still going. This is why it wasn't shaping into a book very easily in my head, because I have a lot to say about it. Uh, <laughs> so if that's the kind of thing that is of interest to you, check it out. All of the essays get posted uh, for free on BookView Cafe. But I will say that patrons at a certain level and above get bonus essays where I talk about applying this stuff to my own work. And I have done a bunch of essays that are about the world building we've done for Rook and Rose. So if you want kind of the behind the scenes look at that, then join the Patreon. You will get access to those. Yeah. And I believe uh, Bookview Cafe, do they also have ebook versions of that? There's like a year one, year two, year three? Right. I've been doing yearly collections. Uh, I'm actually closing in on finishing the one for the fourth year. So yeah, the first three years are available both as ebooks and as print books if you want them. Uh, the third print book is just about to become available. So yes, if you want to get them in a, a collected spot rather than waiting through years of archives on a blog, that's probably more <laughs> convenient. And those are like New World's Year One, New World's Year Two, etc. Um, I don't really have anything to plug of my own, but I'm going to plug Marie's Dice Tales <laughs> because I, I actually think like there's, there's, um, I don't know, you can probably talk more about when exactly you were writing it and where it falls into uh, when the, the game started, but um, there's, there's a lot of interesting meaty stuff in there as well. And I think uh, talking about the kind of collaborative game and pro or the collaborative process in gaming um, I think there's some fun stuff that you. Yeah, it's just it's a bunch there. of essays I wrote about role playing games and specifically storytelling within role playing games, which is why it's called Dice Tales. Yeah, and is this something that people can find somewhere? Yes, uh, it is available as an ebook, and since I'm learning how to do print formatting myself, there will be a print edition of it eventually, but that does not exist yet. Okay, perfect. and I think it's like on your site and book you book you cafe and things like that. Yeah, yeah, and it, uh, basically all of the ebook retailers in general should have all of my ebooks. Okay. Great. And I will be, listeners, I will be trying to put links to all of these in the show notes. So if you want to check those out directly, you can do that. Well, where can people find the two of you online? Uh, so I'm at my full name on everything. So alyshelms.com, alyshelms on Twitter, because um, Alyss, so it's A-L-Y-C, is a very unique name. And I don't have a lot of name competition. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much findable just by that. 
I we are jointly. I uh, we have a website, Ma Carrick. Uh, our Twitter is Ma underscore Carrick. Um, there's also like a Facebook page. Uh, for for myself, I have got uh, SwanTower.com, and then Twitter is Swan underscore Tower because I think Swan Tower without the underscore was taken when I got there. Um, and actually, both my website and the Ma Carrick website have signups for newsletters. We promise that we don't send more than one a month, and actually, it's usually more like one every three or four months. So we do not daily you with email, I promise. Yeah. And, I, the, and the M.A. Carrick site has like the pattern widget that you were talking about. Right. And, right. Uh, just in general, like write-ups on like pattern and numinotria and a couple of the other things. And we'll probably be posting more of those yeah. as we kind of get to the book coming out. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because I like putting a bunch of like sort of extra DVD extra type stuff on the website. So that's on my site and it will be on the M.A. Carrick site as we go forward. Yeah, I know as of the time of this recording, there's at least the three magic systems that are detailed on the site. Yeah. And when this episode is live, there will probably be more, it sounds like. Yeah, probably. Because <laughs> there's lots of stuff that we want to tell people about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we, I think we were, we were discussing maybe also doing an, astro uh, an astrology widget. Yeah. Uh, which I yeah, need so to you can get your, your horoscope from, uh, from yeah. the website. <laughs> that sounds so awesome. <laughs> Well, uh, so a way I like to close out all these interviews is just what's one thing that you're excited about right now? Uh, the prospect of a vaccine. <laughs> yeah. Yes. If that's too dark, you can edit that out. Nope. <laughs> nope. I'm like, I'm like, oh, you, you, you took that one seriously. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I have a, a less serious answer as well, which is um, I have kind of randomly uh, fallen into doing a perfume sampling thing because we wanted to do something for the series where we were going to like pick a scent for each of the characters and like work that in so that it would be this really like distinctive thing running through it. Only neither of us actually does enough perfume stuff for us to really come up with good answers to that. So it gets mentioned occasionally but it's not worked in the way we originally envisioned. But I've started sampling a bunch of perfumes because I have a very good sense of smell, but no training in how to tell like what's in a perfume and to pick out the different notes and so forth. So I've been trying like a new perfume every day and it's been interesting. Some of them are great. Some of them are terrible and a lot are in between. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think you mentioned, is that a advent calendar of scents that you're doing right now? Basically, Yoon Ha Lee had been posting about trying different scents. And so I had some samples that I'd picked up from Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab. And I was like, I should try those. And so I post about these. And Yoon said, hey, do you want a bunch of samples that I'm looking to just trade away anyway? And I said, sure. And then 57 perfumes showed up <laughs> in my house. There's these little like tiny sampler vials rather than giant bottles or anything, but 57 of them. So yeah, I've been kind of doing an advent calendar of perfumes because I have all of these things that Yoon sent me. Thank you, Yoon. Um, and then for me, I swore that I was not just going to talk about Heaven Officials Blessing all the time in every <laughs> we just media. talked about it. <laughs> yeah, but I pretty much talked about it in everything we've talked about everything we've done so far. But so this is a this is a Chinese boy love novel. Um, the original title is uh, Tianguan Sifu, and it's by Mo Sheng Tangshu, and who also wrote the novel that the drama The Untamed is based on, which is probably if anybody knows her stuff, that's what they're going to know, because uh, it became, it kind of exploded in the States a little bit. Um, but 
just yesterday, they announced that they're going to do a live action of Heaven Official's Blessing, which is my favorite of her three books. I, I love it so much. And uh, it's it's so it's going into production. The guy who directed The Untamed is going to be directing the Heaven Official's Blessing uh, live action. So yeah, I'm just basically, I'm a pile of happy goo all over that. I've been debating castings with all of the other English language fans online. And I'm really hoping that they won't have to change too much of the original story because it is a boy love novel. So there's a lot of, you know, uh, queer stuff. Uh, to meet the requirements of the censors. But one thing I will say is that the the all of the adaptations of, of uh, Mosheng Tongshu's work, um, they have been really pushing as hard as they can to be as faithful to the original stuff as possible in the face of pretty significant censorship to the point where I'm like, come on, Western media, get your act together. Like, you know, Death Deal broke... Like Hua Chong and and Xie Leon is woke. Um, <laughs> I, I I join people who are frustrated about the whole ending of Supernatural. Fair. Yeah. What are you talking about? It ended after season five. Like that, there were five seasons. Uh, that was, was the actual ending. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. There, there was no epilogue on the end of season five either. So. <laughs> no. No. It was. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So that's what that's what I'm all giddy about right now. And. I think that wraps up about everything I have for you. So thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. This has been such a delight. And to make sure I'm closing this out properly, may you see the face and not the mask. Well done. <laughs> Very well done, sir. If you want to find Alyssa Helms, Marie Brennan, or M.A. Carrick online, all of those links are in the show notes and in the blog post. Obviously, anthropologists make for incredible world builders, but The Mask of Mirrors has equally compelling characters and layers of intrigue. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyin.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server, where you can hang out with us in real time and find more books than you'll ever know what to do with. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon or take a minute of your time to leave us a review online. It really means the world. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time. <laughs>